Welcome to the February 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. We're going to start this episode off with a how I did it story. Genealogist and author Kenyatta Berry is going to be here to share how she used newspapers to build a family history story. And then contributing editor Sonny Morton will be here to provide strategies for African-American genealogical research. Diane Southerd is back for another DNA Deconstructed segment to explore three problems with shared DNA matches. In our Best Genealogy website segment, Jen Allen, the Director of Events at FamilySearch, will be here to talk about how you can use the Roots Tech website and app for a great Roots Tech conference experience. And finally, we'll check into the editor's desk with Andrew Cook for the latest happenings at Family Tree Magazine. As always, there's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up is How I Did It with Kenyatta Berry. I'm Kenyatta D. Berry, and this is How I Did It, using newspapers to create a story of your ancestors' lives. I've been doing genealogy for over 20 years, and early in my professional genealogy career, I chose to focus on enslaved genealogy. This is one of the most challenging areas of genealogy, and I felt that my background in law would be beneficial in helping people find their enslaved ancestors. Records were generated in the names of enslavers and sometimes with minimal information about the enslaved. Typically, the enslaved did not know their exact birth date or age. For about 15 years, I've been looking for the death date of my enslaved fourth great-grandmother, Martha Payne Carter. She was born about 1820 in Virginia and began a relationship with Lewis Carter about 1848 or 1849. Their first child, Emily Ann Carter, was born August 29, 1849 in Madison County. I knew that Martha Carter was living with her daughter, Emily, and son-in-law, James Philip Sellers, in Leroy, New York, in 1920. I have not been able to find a death record for Martha Carter in Virginia and New York. A few years ago, I started researching newspapers to learn more about my family in upstate New York. I found information on Martha's arrival in Leroy, New York in 1917, in the New York Age, an African-American newspaper that published information on African-Americans in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and around the country. I knew from a 1920 census record that she was living with her daughter, Emily C. Sellers and her son-in-law, James P. Sellers, in Leroy in 1920. I expanded my search to include articles about her daughters, Emily C. Sellers and Mrs. A. L. Price, living in Leroy and the surrounding areas. This led me to an article describing Martha's death in 1922. She had gone back to Virginia a few weeks prior and died on August 25th. Martha was more than 100 years old and identifies her three daughters left to mourn her. Her granddaughter, Delilah Sellers Bundy, would die at 102 years old. The lesson learned, you never know where you're going to find information about an ancestor. I have found death dates and deeds. It pays to look at ethnic newspapers and newspapers in cities where children of your ancestors might have migrated. Newspapers can be a great source to help fill in the gaps during census years, provide social history, and battle record information when the record isn't available. Wow. 
One of the great benefits of a Family Tree Magazine premium subscription is exclusive online access to in-depth articles. Now, one of these articles is Trace Your African-American Slave Ancestors. And here to tell us more about it is one of the authors, Sunny Morton. Hi, Sunny. Hello, Lisa. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. And, um, you know, in looking at this article, I, I really realized African-American research starts like all other genealogical research. It starts with ourselves, and then we work backwards. What are some of the strategies that you recommend as we research those most recent generations? Well, so I would agree with you. Yes, it's it's important to start with yourself. You always All history in your family starts with yourself and works backward. Um, but you're going to pay special attention, and everyone who's constructing a family tree is paying special attention to the experiences of their living relatives. So anytime you can talk with somebody in your family, gather their stories, as well as the names, dates, and places that will help you build your family tree. And that's sort of because that's your family, you know it's your family and then when you start to go into records, and you might be looking at another Samuel Johnson, but you don't know if it's your Samuel Johnson, you can compare what you find online with what your family's told you, because you know that's your family. So it really helps to start within your own family network and whatever relatives you have who might have collected a little trove of papers or photographs or memories, um, elderly relatives whose memories might reach back more into the distant past. You want to make sure that you talk to them. So as you're moving back in time in African-American research, um, do do folks kind of hit a different brick wall, you know, I mean, it seems like that there's kind of that area where you get back towards the Civil War, and then the records really change. Tell us about some of those unique challenges. Yes, and there are challenges every once in a while, Lisa, even before that, once you start looking at vital records, and you start trying to extend your tree past your family memories. And Mm -hmm. so you're looking for those birth and marriage and death records for people between now and then going back to about 1870 or so, you're looking for those vital records. But an additional challenge for African Americans is if those records were, were kept in a segregated manner. So there might have been one state might have kept a particular marriage register, but then they might have kept a separate register that they might have called the colored register. Or so you might not even be aware that your ancestors might not be appearing in the record sets you're looking in. So it's really important when you're looking at a record set. Um, to make sure, like if you're you're going to ask about, okay, my these these birth records or marriage records, were they inclusive of my ancestors, or would they have excluded my ancestors? And if they would have excluded, look around to see if another companion set of records may exist. So that's one of the strategies that you'll use in an additional challenge as you're heading back to that um, that slave era. And then another one is that during this time period where you're focusing really on on your family's structure, you're also kind of looking over their shoulder to see if you get a hint if there is a family nearby who would fit the profile of an enslaver, a, a slaveholder, who would have had that relationship to your family, because sometimes those relationships continue down the generations if the family stayed in the same area. 
They may have continued to associate a friendship, um, working for each other, those kinds of things. So there are times when you'll be able to um, uncover the identity or at least make a theory about the identity of a slaveholding family um, while you're going back toward the slave era. And there might even be crossover in names. Uh, Wouldn't potentially a slave take the surname of the slaveholder? That did happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. So um, I was just talking to my co-author on this article, Dr. Deborah Abbott. I was just talking to her last night about a case study that she was working on where she actually saw the slaveholders or the enslavers' family names show up down through the generations of the freed black family. And so um, there was a strong, in this case, enough of a positive family connection that that remained. I would not say that that would be the norm, but the surname attached may be. So it might have been um, maybe the last family with which they had that slaveholding relationship or a previous family to which they, when they chose a surname, that's the surname that came to mind. And then sometimes they chose something altogether because they were distancing themselves from that time and place in history. And so they would choose a name more like Washington or Freeman or something that spoke to where they were headed in the future. Right, makes sense. So really unique challenges. You've given us some great strategies on on how to approach them. I'd love to have you talk a little bit about some of the latest record collections that have become available because um, there's a lot of exciting things coming online. What's the, the newest collections that we should keep our eyes out for? You're right, Lisa. There's some wonderful collections that have come online recently that are continuing to develop online. For example, this year, sometime the Smithsonian Magazine has announced that sometime this year, a web a website called Enslaved People of the Historic Slave Trade will launch. And that will be, it's, they're describing it as an enormous database that's kind of a clearinghouse for information about individual enslaved people and the enslavers. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to help genealogists and other historians, anyone who's trying to understand um, the people and the issues involved, uh, historic issues relating to slavery, can really have a lot more resources for searching. Because there are a lot of great databases out there, but maybe there's a runaway slave notices extracted from newspapers in this state and then another state has um, a slave birth index or something like that, but they've never been put together. So they're, they're trying to bring together a lot of resources that will provide for a more comprehensive look at the, the kind of fragmented documents that might be available on people who are enslaved. So that's very exciting, and it's due to launch later this year, but I can give you something right now. How's that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something else, too. So I've been watching Family Search lately. I keep my eyes open for what comes on our giant genealogy websites, and I've noticed that there are more than 30 historical record collections in the past year or so that are new or updated that have relevance to African-American genealogy. That's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of these these are vital records, voter registrations, cemetery records, and even incarceration record collections for Southern states. And they're not exclusively African-American in most, most or all cases, but they, they include a lot of people that you're going to want to be looking for if you're looking for African-American roots. And then there's other things like uh, recruitment lists for the U.S. colored troops during the Civil War for the state of Missouri. Um, And then we're starting to see also passenger records for slave ships. Oh, my. 
I know. Do these actually name the people? Yes, they do. Now, in many cases, you know, that's so exciting to think, well, I could, I could jump to that. And I just want to caution you, go back to the very beginning of this conversation where we say start in the present and work your way backward. Right. You may still have bridges to cross. Debbie and I were talking about this last night, the idea that, you know, we don't necessarily, we can't necessarily connect our last known ancestor or our oldest known ancestor with somebody who would have been on a, a passenger list for one of these slave ships docking in New Orleans Mm-hmm. or in Cape Province, South Africa. So we, we might not, there's still bridges to cross between here and there, but it's the record collections are really coming online and we're starting to see a lot of really great resources that can help you take your African-American research deeper and broader and more meaningful. Boy, that's really exciting. And we always love to see new record collections. It just gives people a hope that maybe they'll be able to uh, get past the places where they're kind of stuck in their research Anything else in this arena that you wanted to share with our listeners? Well, I think that about covers it. I would, um, I, I know people always say, well, you've just given me lots of great tips to help me research my enslaved ancestors. But remember that not all African American ancestors were enslaved. Um, and so you want to make sure that you also keep in mind the possibility that they may have been free. Your ancestors may have been free, at least during part of the slavery era mm-hmm. here in the United States. And so you're going to want to use a lot of the same uh, record strategies that you'd use for non-African Americans when you're non-enslaved people, when you're looking in old censuses and all these other kinds of records. And again, more and more of those keep coming online. So there are lots of resources for free people of color as well. Well, that's a great point, never to make any assumptions about that's right. and to know and understand the status of your ancestor at that time. So you know where to look for the appropriate records. The article's terrific. It's Trace Your African American Slave Ancestors, and it's by Sonny Morton and Dr. Deborah Abbott. And it is part of Family Tree Magazine's premium subscription. So that's how you can get access to that. We'll have more information about that in the show notes, as well as links to a little more information about some of these new record collections that Sonny was talking about. Always great to chat with you, Sonny. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on this subject. Thank you, Lisa. In today's DNA Deconstructed segment, your DNA guide, Diane Southard, is back to explore three problems with shared DNA matches. Welcome back, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, we're thrilled to have you back because you addressed a question on the Family Tree Magazine website recently that I know I've heard several times, and I'd love to have you address it uh, head on today in the show. So the question centers around the shared matches tool. Here it is. It says, is it possible that some of the shared matches in my shared matches list aren't really related to each other? What do you say about that? Well, absolutely. So this is a central tenet of the way we're doing genetic genealogy. I tell people all the time, the shared matches tool is like the one and only genetic genealogy tool that you absolutely need. There's a lot of other tools that make our lives easier, sometimes make things better or easier to understand, but you have to be able to use the shared matches tool. And so basically what the shared matches tool does is it acts as a filter on your match list. So you have, you know, everybody on your whole match list and you could try to go through them one by one and figure out how you're related, or you could use this really great filter. So the shared matches tool basically lets you 
create a subset of your match list that theoretically are all related to each other. The theory is if you choose one match, let's say you are my match, Lisa, and I say, show me everybody in my match list that's related to me and Lisa. So then we get a subset of maybe 20, 30 people even that are related to both of us, which means you and I are both sharing DNA with them. Now, this, like I said, can really help you because if I know, Lisa, that you're related to my second great-grandmother that I'm looking to research, then everyone in this filtered list should in some way be related to her because I know you're related to her. So it just helps you focus on the matches that are the most important. The problem is it doesn't always work. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. I know. And... I feel like the more I tout this tool, the more loudly I also need to say, but hold on. Um, And that's because of the way that DNA works, right? So all the tool is really saying is that you and I are both sharing DNA with these people. It doesn't really tell us how or why. So we need to do our due diligence and do a little more digging into our matches to make sure that they all really are related to us in the way we hope they are. So The best outcome, the best scenario is that they are related to my second great-grandmother and they can help me find out more about her. But there's a couple other scenarios that are also possible. One I call marital problems. Hmm. So basically this means if your ancestor was related or was married multiple times, then you're going to have people in your match list from their other marriages, right? Because they share DNA with you because you're related to this common ancestor. The problem is sometimes when you're looking at this group and you're looking to see how they're related to each other. So I'm looking at this group of unknown matches. I don't know how they're related to me. I look through their pedigree charts and I see, oh my goodness, they're all related to Jane. I don't know Jane. And so I try to figure out how does Jane go in my pedigree? And it seems like I should be related to Jane because all of these people are related to her. I'm sharing DNA with them. And I look and look and look and I can't figure it out. Well, a lot of times it's because Jane is the second wife of my ancestor. So I'm not actually related to Jane. I'm related to her husband, who was my ancestor. And so I'm sharing DNA with these people, not Jane's DNA, but her husband's DNA. Right. So it makes you look like you're related to Jane because everybody seems to be related to her because maybe, you know, your ancestor was the only child and then Jane had 10 kids and, you know, there's tons of their descendants. So it's easy to get misled. But if you look carefully and you're diligent in your genealogy, you'll see, oh, yes, Jane married Marcus. Marcus is my ancestor. That's how I'm actually connected to these matches. Makes sense. Wow. Now, are there any other reasons that it might turn out that you look like you're related, but you're really not? Yeah. So so another reason just is is a, a small population. So if you know, and this is this is part of knowing your own family history, right? The more you know about your knowns, I tell people, the more you know about the people you know, <laughs> the better able you are to understand how to fill in the blanks, the people that you don't know. Mm-hmm. So if you know, for example, that you have a branch or two or three in your family that come from a small place, small towns, um, isolated communities, it doesn't even have to be what we call endogamy, which would be like repeatedly marrying over and over and over again. It's just a small place, you know, where there 
aren't very many marriageable partners. So what that means is it might look like, again, that you're connected to a certain ancestral couple, but you're not. So picture this small community and you've got, you know, several different DNA matches that are all coming from this community and you jump to the conclusion, oh, well, they must be related to my ancestors who are from this community. When really you're all just related to different ancestors in that same community and you have some some matches that are sharing with each other because of your connection and some that are sharing with each other because of other connections so it's kind of a big mess honestly mm-hmm. but it it does it does help just to recognize oh wait that's right that's a small town and we don't all have to be connected in the same way right and it sounds like in your deconstruction of this issue that really it comes down to you still have to do genealogical research to back it up and and really know and explore your tree as well. Absolutely. The shared matches is just a glorified hinting system. It says, hey, take a look at these matches. We think they might be all related to you in this way. But in the end, you still have to find the record. (laughs) That's a very good lesson to learn. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much, Diane, for explaining this to us. No problem. Well, it's time to talk best genealogy websites. And today I've invited Jen Allen. She's the director of events at FamilySearch to talk about how you can use the RootsTech website and app for a great RootsTech experience. Welcome to the show, Jen. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much, Lisa, for having me on. I'm excited to be here as we, you know, get closer and closer to the conference. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. RootsTech 2020 is just a few weeks away. I imagine you are super busy. So I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us today. And I'd love to start off with just talking about the website. How can folks who are attending, as well as those who maybe aren't going to be able to make it this year, how can they use the website at rootstech.org to its fullest? That is a great question. You know, our conference has so much information. And especially as we're growing, we we really try to have rootstech.org be the main place, the hub for you to go and get all your information. If you're going to the conference, there's so many great resources there of all the events and activities that are taking place um, outside of the conference. So, you know, days and times and schedules and even speakers of each one of those. In addition to a very robust um, application where you can look at the full schedule of over 300 classes that are being taught at the conference. And, you know, sort them and filter them based on your favorite speakers or even content. If you want to see all the DNA classes across all four days, there's so many different ways that you can sort and filter out that content to see what you want to see. It's a very, very helpful tool as you start getting ready for the conference. And for those who may not be joining us, uh, there are so many things that you can interact and engage with that it almost, you know, almost feels like you're at the conference and you can see the classes that are being taught. And, um, you know, as you know, there is a virtual experience, even for those who don't come, that if they want to pay for a pass, they can do so and get 30 of the best classes held at, at the conference. Um, recorded just for them that they can log into all year long 
and take a look at those classes, watch them over and over, however they see fit. That sounds great. And I know in the past, you've done live streaming. Um, Are there going to be some things that are available for free on the website as far as the live streaming? Or will that be in kind of uh, enveloped into the package? That is a great question. No, we still have virtual options that are free. uh, And that's your live streaming, as you just said. So that still takes place all four days. Uh, The general sessions are always included in that, as well as two to three classes in addition to that each day. Uh, So, you know, you get between three and four hours of viewing for free every single day, and that includes the keynote session, uh, the general session with the keynote speakers. So, Wow. So it's a huge resource for everybody, whether or not they'll be there in person. But of course, those who are going to be in person are going to have so much to choose from. Uh, you mentioned on the website that they can do some filtering. There's also, of course, the RootsTech app. And I imagine that doing some of that ahead of time in the app is a great way to kind of lay out your schedule, how you want to spend your time. Tell us a little bit how they can take advantage of the app on their smartphone. Absolutely. My personal favorite tool during the conference and even leading up to is the mobile app. I use it all the time, uh, even on site, answering questions for people who want to know where to go or what's going on and when the app is the best way. And especially leading up to the event, if, if I was a conference goer, there are so many opportunities in there to star your favorite classes, even kind of create your own schedule. Um, and what I love about that is kind of in the moment, Uh, you know, sometimes your agenda changes based on how tired you are and you don't want to walk to that classroom super far away. And it's nice to have two or three options listed on your calendar that you can do on the mobile app so that in the moment you can say, you know what, this class is way closer. I want to go to that one. Or all my friends are going to this other one. So I'm going to follow them and go to that. So um, the, the mobile app just gives so many opportunities for you to customize You can even star your favorite exhibitors that you want to go and visit to remind you later on, oh, I did want to talk to that person or that booth or that, um, you know, salesperson and go take a look at what they have to offer in their in their booth. So, so many customizable ways on the mobile app if you have a smartphone to um, prepare for the conference. Yeah. And the Salt Palace, that's a big location. Like you were talking about, sometimes you're sitting there thinking, do I really want to walk all the way over there to get to this class? They There are maps in the app, right? We can really help navigate ourselves. Yes. In fact, we tested out a new tool last year that, um, you know, a lot of our attendees are still getting used to it being there. But there's a interactive map that you can go to. Uh, it will show you kind of where you, you are and where you want to go. So say, you're over in a classroom on 155, but you want to get to the family search booth. Well, it will show you these little green dots on the best way to get there and to navigate. Um, so it's very, it's a really nice tool on site to, because not everybody walks in and knows exactly where Ballroom J is versus room 255. And so this map really helps you navigate the best way to get through one end of the convention center to the next. And this year, it's a little challenging because there will be some construction on site. So where you were used to one specific opportunity, it may not be there. It's going to look a little different, unfortunately. Yeah, they're building a big hotel, right? Yes, yes. A multi-story, I think it's 20 to 30-story hotel. It's going to be a Hyatt. It'll be beautiful and wonderful. But for the next four years, we get to, (laughs) you know, 
have patience with that. Tiptoe around a little bit. Well, so there you have it. There's there's rootstech.org. There is the mobile app. Um, there are items that you can watch while it's all happening. So you can be a part of it if you're not there. And of course, if you're there, I would recommend, I know I do this every year, I do my homework before I get there. So it's kind of mapped out. You can use the app to, to um, prompt you along the way to make sure you don't miss a thing. Jen, this has been so helpful. Anything else that we need to know to make sure that we get the most out of our experience? You know, really, like you said, it's all about preparation. And it depends on the person you are. Sometimes you'll plan a week in advance and others you're doing it each night. You know, Wednesday night, I'm planning my Thursday schedule. And that's totally fine, too. But there are the tools and resources available to make sure you get the most out of your conference experience. And, you know, go to the classes that you really want to engage in. So, We hope that we've made it a really good and positive experience for everybody, whether you're trying to figure out on site and there's lots of blue shirts around that you can ask the staff people who are there willing to walk you to where you need to go even. Um, So with with all of that, we try to make it as positive and joyful of an experience as possible. So come and join us. We hope you will. And if you don't, join us online because there's a whole lot of people chatting about it online during the conference too. Absolutely. There's a hashtag for that, isn't there? There is. That one grew organically, not, <laughs> not through us, but uh, it's a hashtag not at Roots Tech. And there's a huge community who join us at the conference virtually who are not physically there. And it's a lot of fun to see that community grow as well. Absolutely. Well, all of those of you listening, you can uh, keep up to date with Family Tree Magazine on the latest Roots Tech related news at familytreemagazine.com slash Roots Tech. Jen Allen, thank you so much and have a fantastic event. I look forward to seeing you there myself. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lisa. Well, before we jump into this segment, let's check in at the editor's desk at Family Tree Magazine to find out what's happening. And here to tell us all about it is Andrew Cook. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. Hey, I know you guys have been busy. My gosh, we're already into February of 2020. Um, what are some of the things you guys have cooking over there at Family Tree Magazine? Oh, yeah, we got a lot of irons in the fire. So I thought we'd just share the latest. So the March-April issue of the magazine is now out to subscribers And this issue is all about websites. Our cover story for the March-April issue is called The Fab Four. And in it, contributing editor and friend of the podcast, Sonny Morton, compares the big four genealogy websites, Ancestry, FamilySearch, Find My Past, and MyHeritage. And in that article, she shares really uh, insightful information on the different records collections that each website offers, the online tree functionality, and whether or not these companies offer tests, and if they do, uh, how they stack up against each other. Yeah, it's really nice to kind of get a comparison like that, because we're usually at some point dealing with all of these. And I know Sunny's going to be here a little bit later on the show. And I know you're going to be where I'm going to be at the end of this month, which is Roots Tech. Tell us about what you guys are doing at Roots Tech. Yeah, so we will be at the exhibit hall. So please stop by and say hi if you'll be there. And we're actually going to be right next to you, Lisa, in the Genealogy Gems booth. So uh, you can see 
all of us at the same time. Exactly. You just walk in the front door and look to your right, and there we are. Yeah. I'm, I'm, that's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we'll be handing out free copies of the most recent issue, the March-April issue, and we'll be um, selling subscriptions as well. So stop by and say hi. We'd love to hear from our readers and our listeners. But um, if you can't be there, you can follow along with the conference using the hashtag NotAtRootsTech. And you can also check our website where we'll be sharing videos and news highlights from the show floor at FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash RootsTech. Oh, fun. Okay, I'll have a link to that in the show notes for this episode, FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash RootsTech. Um, I know something else that we are looking forward to are some new classes over at Family Tree University. Um, what, what's happening over there? Yes, we relaunched FTU back in December, and we're so excited. We've gotten a lot of great feedback from students on the courses we've already offered on Ancestry.com, on Family Tree Maker, on Organizing Your Genealogy. And so coming up in March, we have Google Earth for Genealogists, which you're hosting, Lisa. Uh, So it's a great opportunity to learn how to use that valuable tool for your research. And uh, we will also be offering a course on Irish genealogy. And registrations for both courses will be open later this month, and listeners can find that at FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash course. Yes, I would love to work with many of you who are listening to the podcast using Google Earth. This is a pretty ex- exciting class, has a lot of functionality, and we really dig into it. And you kind of have me at your personal disposal, so that's really fun. We can uh, take a look at your projects together and answer your questions. Uh, I'm excited about the relaunch of Family Tree University. Sounds like uh, you got lots on your desk. I'll let you go, but we'll look forward to talking to you guys uh, next month. Yes. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for joining me for this February 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show for America's number one genealogy magazine. You can find information and website links for the things we talked about today in the podcast show notes. Just head to familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you'll find the brand new third edition of my book, The Genealogist's Google Toolbox, in our store, and the free Genealogy Gems podcast, which is also available as an app in your favorite app store. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.